Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Matthew five seventeen to 21, and 31 and 32. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades. All right, kiddos, speaking of Elevate, you can follow Barrett. Are you in Elevate today? Awesome, they're gonna have a great time. If you wanna follow Mr. Barrett, uh, first and second grade, you can follow out that door or wherever, the door of your choosing. And yes, uh, and thank you, Jeremy Neville. Um, I always uh, love when Jeremy prays for uh, our veterans and those who have given their life. Um, And he has an amazing perspective on that. And so I'm grateful for that. Uh, happy Memorial Day, happy Ascension Sunday, happy Day of Pentecost. Uh, we're fitting it all in here together. Um, and, uh, and we're going to talk about divorce. <laughs> I mean, here's the deal. We've got to do it sometime. It's, it's, it's here. So why not on a holiday weekend? Uh, and just so you know, like from here on out, it's downhill. Like we've gotten some really hard things taken care of. We've got lust down. We've got divorce and anger the only two left are retaliation and love your enemies. And then, and then it's, and we're zooming forward. Um, so, uh, several years ago, I had a friend ask me to meet with one of his friends. Uh, this guy had experienced a, a, a near tragic event in his life when he was younger. And, um, and he just had some questions that he wanted to sit down and talk to a pastor about. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. So we went out and we got some hot wings. And uh, he shared with me the story of when he was younger, working in the trades, there was an accident and his work. And something happened where a ditch had collapsed on him. And by all accounts, it should have either crushed him or suffocated him. Uh, And yet the rocks and the dirt and the mud fell in such a way that his body was spared and there was room to breathe and they were able to rescue him with relatively minor injuries. And so he's telling me this story, and I'm just like listening. And so he said, so my, my question is, do, do you think God has a purpose for my life? That's a loaded question. Uh, and, and I'm never quite sure if there's more behind that question or like what, what's, what's behind that. Um, and so the first thing I told him was I'm incredibly grateful that God spared his life. That's not everybody's story. It's just not. So I'm glad that God spared his life, and I'm glad that he's here. Um, and 
and ultimately, what I said was, yes, God does have a purpose for your life, always, always. But, but this is not something for you to feel like overwhelmed by, like you have to accomplish this great thing. This is not like you're not going to be president, maybe, uh, probably, uh, nor would I wish that on anybody. Um, and, uh, but also, like, I don't want you to feel like overwhelmed with this need to accomplish something. Uh, in fact, probably the best response to this would be one of gratitude. Your life had been spared. And so when you see blue skies, when you see an amazing uh, day in May that we have, like that never happens in St. Louis, and when you get to experience that and you breathe in air, when you think back, there might be, there might be a, a triggering, there might be some PTSD, you might be wrestling with stuff, but also in that moment to, to just have a renewed sense of gratitude that God has given you life, and that's good. And let that, uh, that, that you, you're, you look at your days differently, that God's creation, provision, and protection are never too far from your mind. And, I, and in, in my mind, I was like, that's pretty good. And this is what he did. He looked at me. I'll never forget his response. He looked at me, and I, I think he also thought it was pretty good. Uh, and he had a nod. He's like, yeah. So, um, what do you think about black holes? And I was like, where, what? Where did we go? Uh, and, um, all of a sudden I I didn't know what we were talking about anymore. (laughs) Uh, and I don't know if anything I'd said had mattered if, like, if he just wanted to get that out, um, to tell his story, um, and, and, it, and, and from that, I realized, sometimes we ask questions just to be able to ask questions, sometimes we don't really want to know or learn the answers, we just want to be able to ask the questions, uh, sometimes we just want to hear that we're right, uh, or sometimes we just want to ask a question and move on to the next one, <laughs> you know, even, even, hey, what's the meaning of life? Huh. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, you know, who do you think should DH for the Cardinals? Like, we, sometimes our, our brains just go like that. In this portion of the, Sermon on the, of the Sermon on the Mount, in all of these things, Jesus is going to continue to mess with us. Some long-standing traditions, some presumptions that we have. We ask our questions, and he's going to maybe even mess more with some of our presumptive answers. Some of our black and white solutions. These sins are okay. These sins are not okay. These sins are publicly acceptable. These sins aren't. These people are good people. These people are bad people. Jesus saves sinful people. Yes, amen. Uh, But not that sin. And sometimes I think we want nice, comfortable lounge chairs to to pull up to the table of the gospel and just kick back and be like, Jesus is okay with my sins, but not theirs. Uh, and he's going to tell us once again, over and over again, you cannot pull up a comfortable chair to this table apart from me. I am the bread of life. I am the cup of salvation. So, on the one hand, the passage that we just read is it's pretty easy translation, right? It's pretty easy to just to put that out there, and there's not a whole lot of complexities to it. On the other hand, uh, this passage is loaded and difficult 
and weighty, and it involves people. And it's a holiday weekend. So, here's what I want to ask, at least initially. All right? Nod if you can do this. I'm, and I'll wait till I ask the question. You don't have to nod yet. Um, here's what I want to ask you to do initially. All right? I realize there's a lot going on in this passage. What I want you to do initially is I want you to try to approach this with an academic mind to try to understand what's going on in this passage. Sometimes it can be a good exercise to kind of step out of ourselves, our experiences, our complicated lives, and, and, uh, and our complicated realities and the new, and, and step out and just put on kind of an academic lens to examine this as objectively as we can. Can I ask you to do that favor? All right, and then at a later time, and I will totally give the bat signal when it's okay to do this, we will step back into ourselves, our lives, our complications to be able to address this, all right? So first, we're going to try to hit it with the mind, and then at the end, we'll, we'll deal with the heart. Is that cool? Okay, all right. Um, so there's actually a lot to unpack in this passage and this whole history and this whole thing, way more than we have time for, and I narrowed it down a fraction to make sure we get out in time for the Cardinal game and barbecue this afternoon. Uh, I don't even know what time the Cardinals play, so I may have lied right there. Uh, so um, I want to try to do a fairly quick job of unpacking a lot of this history because it's important what we hear in these passages. Sometimes we can take stuff like this, and you've probably done it or heard it or seen it, where we take a quick passage and we totally remove it from its context and we just use it. Sometimes we use it as self-condemnation. Sometimes we use it as preaching condemnation for everybody else. Uh, sometimes we just make these, well, you know, God hates divorce. Yes. There's got to be more to that, right? <laughs> you know, like, so how do we, uh, so I want to give some of the uh, context. And then sometimes we do mental magic with scripture where we're like, all the passages about sexual morality are gone. We just love, you know, like, so we got to be careful with this. We got to have context. Um, so I do believe that there's a more specific connection between these three passages here, lust, divorce, and even down into oaths. Uh, and the reason, because when Matthew records this, you'll see, he says, you've heard it said, and then he gets to divorce and he says, you've also heard it said, and then oaths, and again, you've heard it said. And I think there's a connection with these three. They kind of fit together. They all fit together uh, in this uh, whole piece of, of the sermon here. But I think these fit together a little bit more. Um, what Jesus is doing in, in this whole section here is he's upending religious efforts where we try to appear righteous by upholding external laws. Uh, and I say we, the religious leaders of the day. This is how they had set up the world to operate. Um, and Jesus is upending all of these efforts. So if you remember from lust, we talked about lust last week. Uh, it, for, for a religious leader to say, well, I've never committed adultery. Now, here's the deal. In these passages, adultery is the big dog. This is the big one here. Um, it is the big sin that's on display that if you can avoid that, there's other more minor sins that you can commit, but not that. That's the big dog. Uh, and no religious leader ever wants to be convicted of uh, adultery, always, and then every religious leader kind of wants to be able to stand on the high ground and speak down at other people. 
right? Uh, and and, and these, can be, these are good warnings for sure, uh, but what Jesus does is he levels the playing field. Okay, so you've never, uh, you've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Well, well you know, I mean, not technically. Okay, then guess what? In your mind and your heart, you're right, it's not the same as the action, but in your mind and your heart, you have objectified her, you have done the same. In your heart, you've committed adultery. Another way guys try to get around this uh, in regards uh, to these complicated laws on divorce, this was another way that men tried to kind of go around this. Uh, It's not adultery if you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce, freeing her to marry somebody else, and then go and do your thing and marry another one. Then technically... And so that becomes a justice issue, especially in the ancient world. Women were just being put out. Men, men had the economic wherewithal in the Old Testament. It was largely based on physical, uh, and men worked the fields, and men did the physical labor, and men had the inheritance, and all that kind of stuff. And we can argue about it, but like, it doesn't change that. Um, and uh, men, if you wanted to, a, a woman's security had to do with her household. And so if a man was like, go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing, go, then uh, what Jesus does here in these complicated laws on divorce is he says, you are causing her to commit adultery, so guess what? You're still, you're still guilty. You're still doing this. I'm going to come around to explain why, how, why this all works and what the laws were for, but keep with me on these. Jesus is telling us, if you are going to measure your righteousness on technicalities, if you're going to try to merit your righteousness, I'm going to call you at every possible angle. And if you're going to try to do that, you're going to try to build the system like the scribes and the Pharisees have done, you're not even in the king, this is not even a kingdom language here. You cannot merit your righteousness. That's what he's doing in all of these. Uh, is he's undoing their efforts to try to appear righteous by meeting the technicalities of the law. So this is when this is linked to the previous passage. It becomes more about exposing this approach to external righteousness. If, you're gonna, if, if this is how we're going to measure, you're not even in the right ball field. Uh, and I think that Jesus brings up divorce in this case to illustrate the point, although there is a lot going on. In Matthew 19, uh, Jesus is approached by a lawyer who's trying to trick him into answering a technical question, and Jesus gives a more full uh, description of the views of his view of divorce and what the laws bring up in there. Um, and this kind of leads us more into this teaching on divorce that Jesus addresses here. So in other words, partly, I don't know that Jesus is specifically addressing divorce here. He's more addressing external righteousness. However, this is the example that he uses to address external righteousness here. So we're going to talk about it. Um, So once again, as we get back into the law, keep your academic hats on, all right? If you can. Deuteronomy 24 This is the law. This is ethics from above. Moses gives this command in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. 
Um, now, there's more that happens of where she goes and what she can do and what she can't do, but that's the main part of that right there. In the ancient world, men had more privileges than women. It's just there, everywhere. Every religion, it wasn't just one ancient religion, everywhere men had more privileges than men. Now, uh, men had more privileges than women. Now, don't think that they were not held accountable for those. They were held highly accountable for those privileges to steward that well. That's what the law is for. They were held accountable of what they did with those privileges. The law is there to give reminders and guidance to steward that privilege well. And remember, the law is not just about the technicalities of what you do and don't do, but it's about a people of who God's people were to become. Men, you were to be a good steward of your household. You were to provide, to care for, and love your wife. So they had, there was a, a, a responsibility there. And the law not only kept them accountable to that, but it also, as much as it could, implemented punishments for when they did not do it well. The neglect of those privileges. Now, the law can only do so much in this world, but please know that the abuses of authority in and throughout history and continuing on to the future, you may get away with that among men. You may get away with that in this world, but rest assured, the other thing that the law provides us with is the reality that, that you will stand accountable in eternity as well. Even if you get away with it in this life, you will stand accountable in the next. All right, so these divorce laws actually could be enacted by women as well, um, but the interpretation of these laws always made it easier for men. This is not the intent of the law, but this is the reality of the world we live in. They always made it easier for men. Um, and that's why Moses actually puts additional guards in place. A man would have to give a woman a certificate of divorce. He couldn't just say, go, I'm done with you, I'm going somewhere else. He had to give her a certificate. And uh, this was put in place by Moses to try to curb this easy, rampant divorce rate in the ancient, in the ancient Israel uh, world, by men especially. And there were two things that a certificate actually did. One, it allowed the woman to take that piece of paper, to take that, I'm sure it wasn't paper, take whatever that was, whatever the certificate was made out of, and to present it so she was freed from obligation. She could go and remarry. She could go and present documentation that she was now free to carry on her life. She did not have any obligations at this household. There was a level of freedom so that she could regain economic stability. So it was actually for her protection. And it also forced the man to get some kind of documentation. He had to go before a magistrate and plead his cause. He had to present his reason for, for the divorce, for, for putting this woman out. And herein, all right, this, I know this is a long way to get here. Herein lies the debate. What is a justifiable reason? The law says he had found some indecency in her. Ervat Debar. Does anybody know what Ervat Debar means? All right, you're in good company. Uh, because all throughout history, that's been the debate. What does Ervat Debar mean? I mean, technically, it means indecency. But what does that mean? 
Lots of discussion here. There were two megachurch rabbis in Jesus' day uh, that had lots of influence. They had podcasts, uh, their tweets were viral, all of it. And they continued a long-held debate interpreting what exactly does Ervat Debar mean, this idea of indecency. The house of Shammai. The house of Shammai held to a more traditional view of scripture, of the law, that indecency meant that a man could file for divorce only because he found the grounds for it in some form of unchastity. Even there, that interpretation could be played with a little bit. The house of Hillel was much more progressive in their views and said that a man could file for divorce even if she spoiled his dish. Because that was indecency. Now, for men, you'll never guess which rabbi was more popular. It's Hillel. He's the one who made it easy. Um, now, a second century rabbi who was beloved by many, Akiba, he would say that divorce could be granted even if he found someone prettier than her. Because she did not find favor in his eyes. That was his interpretation of that. This is how ancient Israel, this was the temptation of how they would navigate the technicalities of the law. They missed the forest for the trees and would say, okay, so what can we get away with? Which is not the design of the law. What's the lowest common denominator here that we can technically still be righteous and follow? Now, again, women could file for divorce in cases of neglect or abuse or infidelity, uh, but it was way harder to prove. You guys remember the story of when they brought the woman caught in adultery uh, to Jesus, right? In most cases, it doesn't, adultery must involve two people, at least. But it was just one that got brought to Jesus, right? It was way harder for women to prove this. So this is the background. This is the debate that's going on all around Jesus. This is the hot-button issue in Israel of the day. Um, and Jesus is ultimately going to expose the whole debate for what it is. These are not kingdom of God questions. These are kingdom of man questions. You're asking the wrong questions. You're approaching this the wrong way. Uh, th this is how it worked in my generation, right? If you grew up in a youth group uh, in the dating scene, this is the question that we, that we, and I had to deal with this as a youth minister as well. Um, you, you guys know the question, right? How far is too far? It, that, was, that was our question in my generation. I don't even know if that's still a question anymore. Uh, but that was the question we would always ask the youth minister. Or whether we asked it or not, it was the question the youth minister had to address all the time. How far is too far? And really what we're asking when we ask that question is, all right, so how much can I get away with and like still wear this true love weights ring? When do I get kicked out of purity culture? What, like how close to the line can I get? 
And, and I think what scripture would say, or what Jesus would say to that is, I would like for you to flee from temptation. Not to see how close you can get and how much you can get away with. So, so maybe, maybe we, we'd ask a different question on that. The question that have become the focus here is, what, what can we get away with and still be considered righteous? What's justifiable? What are justifiable reasons that we could get away with this? And not even really like what are justifiable reasons to, to, to end this that is good, but like it was more of like what exactly can we, can we get away with? And I think Jesus would have us ask a different question. Maybe what is marriage in the first place? Or better yet, um, what is a covenant? What does it mean to be in covenant? What, what's an oath, right? We talked about that two weeks ago, but it's actually coming up next in the scripture, though, but we've already covered it. What does it mean to take an oath? And hang with me one, more, one minute longer here on the academics. Um, and, and please don't let this, this part get uh, personal in, in the ways that it shouldn't. What we're asking in this question is what is a biblically qualified way of breaking a covenant or reason for breaking a covenant? And here's what we're missing even when we ask that question is the very first part of creation. We were not designed to live in a world with broken covenants. We were not designed to live in a world with broken oaths. We were not designed for betrayal, either committing or receiving. We were designed to trust, to love, to be loved. We were designed to lift one another up. We were designed to help and labor together and trust God. Adam and Eve, in the very first picture of marriage that we have, they stood naked before each other without shame. And then the the passage that I use in every marriage ceremony that I talk about is how marriage was designed. They held fast to one another and they became one flesh. The design of marriage was good. It brought Adam and Eve together, the fullness of the image-bearingness of God, of man and women, together to represent the whole image of God. It was meant to be a lasting covenant that bore the image of God's everlasting covenant. God hates divorce because he hates broken covenants. Because it's not supposed to be part of our world. The kingdom of God is fidelity. It is everlasting covenant. It is trust. It is vulnerability. And what Jesus tells this lawyer in Matthew 19, that tries to trick him up a little bit, it had become way too easy to just decide to break the marriage covenant. For men, mostly. And now, in our day, In some ways it's progress, but now it's easier for both. (laughs) When I was in seminary, um, we were in seminary. I went to class, but we were in seminary. Uh, We had endured some tragic events in our life, uh, and we wanted to process those. We also wanted to process life and ministry as as a married couple, and, and we had only been married for a few years, and so we're finding out all the things about each other that were cute when we were engaged, and now we're like, are you gonna do that forever? Um, and so we went to uh, therapy with one of my professors and the longer I'm in ministry, the more his wisdom just like, 
I'm like, man, I should have taken more advantage of that and to just sit under his wisdom. He was amazing. I talk about him often still. Anyway, uh, one of our sessions, uh, we went in and we talked about uh, uh, this theory that's actually pretty common. And we said, you know, we've, we've kind of operated with divorce is not an option. And his response was super helpful. And he said, essentially, uh, he said, I, 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 uh, I appreciate um, the intended sentiment of that statement, uh, but sometimes I think it may not be helpful. Because sometimes when we go, hey, divorce is not an option, that can sometimes allow one person in the, in the marriage to just kind of be lazy. Hey, you know, I, 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 know, I know she can't go anywhere. I know he can't do anything about it, so maybe I don't have to put in the full work here. And we just had that as the backdrop. Well, you know, divorce is not an option, so we'll worry about that later. And he wasn't saying that happened with everybody. But he said, I, I wonder if rather than just focusing on the safety net, what if there was a better question to ask? And he suggested a different approach of asking often, how am I serving and loving my spouse and my marriage and working to help make both of my spouse and our marriage better? Am I listening Am I working to understand? Am I providing and loving and encouraging my spouse? Am I taking time to enjoy and appreciate? And we've gone back and forth in our marriage uh, coming up on 26 years of times where I've carried the weight and she's had a time of a season of struggle and times where she has carried the weight and I've had a season of struggle and I think we have tried hard to appreciate that but these questions keep coming back. Are we working towards something and not just relying on the safety net? Uh, Moses, and again, the better Moses, Jesus, he gives allowances for divorce. Infidelity, betrayal, abandonment, and, and they, there are reasons that a covenant would be broken because we're in a broken world. Um, and, he, and Jesus even acknowledges that. But he never delights in it. Not because he doesn't delight in you, but because the reality of a broken world is, is not the way it was supposed to be. This is proper grieving. And it should never be easy or flippant. All right. It's time. So, gently take off your academic lenses. Okay? Um, and let's step back into our bodies. If you haven't cheated and you haven't done that yet, Step back into our bodies, our hurts, our fears, our past, our present, our difficult situations, insecurities, complex realities, all of those things. And before we move forward, I want to pray for us. Okay? Christ, have mercy on us. We can hear over and over again that we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. And then at the flip of a switch with one simple trigger word, we can jump right back into salvation by works. We can start declaring primary and secondary citizens of your kingdom. We can start feeling shame and condemnation or we can start doling it out. And you knew that we would be so quick to become self-righteous or self-condemning. And so I want to bring the blood of Jesus against the accuser of the brethren and the sistren who would seek to kill and destroy and declare that whatever and whoever has been freed in your name by your blood and for your glory stands free indeed.
So God, give us grace to move forward. Amen. Um, if you've noticed, we, we live in a broken world. And again, what Jesus does in these passages, he, he levels the playing field. He's not looking to provide excuses, but he's not looking to say, these are the people you can point out and this is what makes you better than them. He's leveling the playing field. We all stand guilty. Uh, I read an internet meme, post, whatever, it was a picture, and it ended with this intended encouragement um, that said, you're not broken, and anyone who says that, they're the broken ones. Which is essentially the exact same thing the Pharisees were doing. Now, I have a great disagreement with this, mostly because I don't know that convincing ourselves that we're not broken is very helpful. Because I think, I think we know. Right? And if we don't know, there's a whole classification of that in the psychology workbooks. Right? Um, most of us know, I think, and, and convincing ourselves we're not broken, I don't think that turns out well. Uh, now, I'm not talking about like masochistic, just bring the, all condemnation and shame down. But I mean, we have to acknowledge that we're broken. Because I think we, we know that. However, here's where I find that statement convicting. And this goes, this, it's, even, it's even in the statement, but also for religious folk. Uh, for the people that Jesus is, is, is talking about here in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the ones that fill churches, the ones that sit in pews every week, where we say that we're all broken, but some people are more broken. There's probably not one person in this room that has not been infected in some way by divorce. Live in that identity. Even if it was your fault, like even if you would own that, There is redemption, there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, and there is a God who is faithful despite all of our brokenness. The issue of divorce and then consequently, consequentially remarriage, and I'm not going to give you answers on that today. One, because this is so complicated. Um, uh, I've been encouraged all week uh, just having some really good conversations with Mike Durso and getting some emails and and texts, and, and, uh, and he's doing a whole lot. I have a lot to learn here. Um, and, uh, and he's been teaching me, listen, there will always be consequences. There's consequences to everything we do in life. There's consequences to our decisions. There's consequences to, our, to broken covenants. There just are. And they don't, but they don't have to define you, ultimately. What they can do, as in, as as with all of our times of brokenness and hurt, they can actually help us grow in repentance and faith. Um, as a friend and pastor, this is really complex, all right? I'm trying as much as I can to paint the beautiful picture of the kingdom of God with fidelity and vulnerability and grace and faithfulness while not just making anybody feel totally dumped on or re-triggering anybody, or any of that. So please heal my heart, uh, hear my heart here. But this is really complex. I have friends who have been wounded, 
And I've had friends who have been the wounder. I've had to counsel both. I've seen perpetrators actually repent and experience radical grace in their life. And I've seen people who have been wounded and it wasn't their fault, the victim, that just get consumed with bitterness and hurt. I've had to drive six hours to confront a friend who was making really stupid decisions about his marriage. And I had to sit down and tell him to his face, you're being an idiot. This was very direct. This, I love him. I won't tell you you're being an idiot unless I love you. And you have the right to tell me that as well. Uh, we've had several friends, we've had several women, women friends who have raised their kids to a certain age and then just seemingly walked away from, from everything, from their marriage. We've had conflicting reports on both sides and they all, they both seem compelling and then it's, and, and when there's a divide there and you go, okay, well, who can I remain friends with both people and who can I talk to and who can I not and whose Facebook posts can I like? Like, I, I, we were actually told not to like another person's Facebook posts. I, I don't know if there's rules on that. It's hard. And these, are, these feel like superficial surface type of, of hard things. And this is the tip of the iceberg, the complications involved. But here's the deal. As followers of Jesus, we are called to bear these burdens with one another in a broken world. We, we are. So let me finish with just some general warnings, but also some encouragements for wherever you might be. Um, when Jesus ushers in this new kingdom and he calls us to be a part of it, when it comes to fidelity, the pursuit of marriage, pursuit in marriage, the potential for self-righteousness, betrayal, infidelity, uh, and even the, the breaking of covenant relationships, what does Jesus call us to do and be as the bride? Um, and this will be quick. First, if you are the, the guilty party in a marriage or a divorce, and, and listen, to a degree, we're all guilty parties. If you're in a relationship, there's some kind of sinfulness that you bring. Um, but when, when we are like the guilty party, uh, if your actions, and you can see this, if your actions, you would admit, were the, the, the primary cause of the break in, in the covenant, listen, the kingdom of God is not for the self-justified. The kingdom of God is not for the self-righteous. Don't try to be your own defense team. Own it. The kingdom of God is for sinners who can own their sin. And that's where we are able to receive grace and forgiveness. When that is exposed and we can say, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. Hiddenness and self-justification, lying, downplaying, any of these things, these are not the pathways to grace. Confession and repentance brings healing. Be healed. And listen, if you're here this morning and this is something that you've sought You've sought reconciliation. You've sought grace. You've sought repentance. But maybe you've never heard these words before or maybe you need to hear them again. Be forgiven. In Christ, you are forgiven. You do not need to carry this for the rest of your life. Be forgiven. If you're the wounded party, Maybe that's as a child or maybe as a spouse. I want to tell you, your wounds are real and you can and should be able to express them. 
But we always need to be aware of sin that crouches at the door like a lion. And bitterness and resentment are two powerful lions that are on the prowl that seek to destroy you. And I hope and pray that you, would, you can find trusted community in God's kingdom that will help forgive and be freed from vengeance, retaliation, bitterness, resentment. To know and experience and trust that God is faithful and experience his kingdom with friendships, may that be a balm to your soul. And then friends who are not divorced, unmarried or married friends who are not divorced, the main point of Jesus' sermon here, do you know what it is? The main point of Jesus' sermon here, beware of self-righteousness. Listen, nobody goes to hell for being divorced and nobody goes to heaven for being married, for staying married. Christ alone is our righteousness. That's the main point. Be aware of the potential for self-righteousness. Be aware of, the, of these lions creeping in and saying, well, I would never. You may say that on your deathbed. Be aware of that. Pursue your marriage well, if you're married, and then provide community and communion for others, especially those who are hurting and, and for those who are being stupid. Like, we provide communion and community for that. Somebody needs to be able to say, hey, you're being stupid. And a question to ask and something to model, have you given anybody authority to speak into your life and your marriage? Have you gone, and I'm not saying, because we don't do well with like taking permission in our day. We get canceled for taking permission. Have you given somebody permission to say, hey, if I'm being an idiot, would you tell me I'm being an idiot? Can I give you the right right now? Because right now I'm in a good place, but when I'm in a bad place, I want you to know that you can come in and tell me to stop. If you're married, who has the right to call you out on stuff? All right, and then this goes for all of us. If we are a kingdom people, then this, this is a family. And we are a part of this family. Together. All right? So when one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. And there's, I mean, there's no married or single in the kingdom of God here, that's, I'm not trying to be like a weird cult thing. I'm trying to, like, like, we are part of this family together, right? Does that, does that make sense? I hope. Don't, somebody's going to tweet that out of context. Uh, we are together in this. So, like, all of us are in this together. Um, this, this is the place. This should not be the last place you come when you're hurting. It should be the first this should not be the place where you're like, well, my life's kind of messing up right now. I don't want to be at church. Oh, God forbid. We should say, man, my life is a wreck right now. I need to be with God's people. And church, this is a call to you. Like this, don't say, yeah, those people really should provide community for me. No, we, this, we're all involved in this. 
This is the place to experience forgiveness. This is the place to be challenged toward faithfulness and fidelity in this new kingdom life, even when it's hard. This is the place to get encouragement when you're struggling. This is the family to be reminded you are not alone. We press on together through the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're in this together. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving me when, uh, when I feel like you shouldn't, which, is, which can be often, um, and when I've given you plenty of reasons not to. Your steadfast love is amazing. And I pray that that would be at work in me and in us and then through us and around us. Relationships are hard. This world is complicated. Everything we are and do and have and be for everyone, it, it just feels under attack. Not one side or the other, both sides. Our enemy is having a field day. So I pray that your words and comfort and grace would speak louder. Remove from us any concept of the thought that we could somehow merit your favor of being better than somebody else. You have leveled the playing field. We are all broken in need of grace. And then you ride in and say, guess what? I have grace in abundance. So I pray that that's where, that's where you would meet us this morning. Have mercy on us. Lift our heads up. May we rejoice in the goodness of our God, feeling renewed and encouraged because of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.